spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. This week's show is definitely a tall order. It's episode 363 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and episode two of The Nevers comes out this Sunday on HBO and HBO Max. So I thought I would get the biggest member of the Touched on the show this week. Anna Devlin, who plays Primrose Chataway, going to be joining me here in just a few minutes. But man, we are loaded again with interviews this week. Also going to talk to Dominic Cook, who's the director of The Courier, the Based on a true story of Greville Wynn, you'll definitely want to hear what he has to say about this Benedict Cumberbatch-led movie. Also going to talk to the Ghost Brothers, Dale and Spratt and Jawan Mass, about Ghost Brothers Lights Out coming to Discovery Plus this Saturday. Oh, so much to talk about. Black Lightning as well. Some nerd news comics. Let's get to it, shall we? Anna Devlin joins me next to talk about the Nevers on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is April Bowlby from DC's Doom Patrol, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Yet another week where we're talking about the Nevers, which had a big premiere last Sunday. Can't wait for this episode on Sunday as well on HBO and HBO Max at 9 o'clock. And the definitely the tallest member of The Touch is going to be joining me this week. It's Anna Devlin, who plays Primrose Chatteray. Anna, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks. Yeah. Happy to be here. So as we know, a lot of fans, like I said, tuned into the first episode this past weekend. What has it been like getting that response on social media since episode one? Oh, my gosh. It's been crazy. I mean, so we've been making season one. It took about two years to make. Wow. So it started to feel like no one was ever going to see what we were doing. Right. And so now that, that it's actually come out, it's been a major pinch me moment all over again because... Now, my friends and family actually know what I'm talking about. Right, exactly, which is always a good thing. No, I wasn't just spending yeah. two years just off on my own doing nothing. I, this is <laughs> what I was doing, and it's amazing, by the way. So when we first meet Primrose, she kind of seems like, you know, she didn't get along well with some of the other ladies at the orphanage right away. It seemed like, okay, she, she seems a bit upset or something like that. So do you think that it has more to do with her age, or is there something a little bit deeper than that? I mean, I think it kind of all converges, really. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I was 16, I definitely wasn't at my most confident and comfortable myself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, it's a difficult age. And I think it's made 10 times harder by the fact that this is when Primrose developed her turn. It's, you know, it's difficult enough being, you know, 16 year old when our bodies are growing and changing and we're getting used to different things happening. But for Primrose to suddenly be a giant is actually kind of devastating at that age because there's no way to fit in when you're 10 foot tall. There's there's no way to, to find someone like you. I mean, I remember at school, you know, that was the one thing I was looking for was just to fit in and feel normal and feel like everyone else. Mm-hmm. So I think Primrose is really challenged in that way. And, you know, especially, you know, she loves all things feminine she loves the idea of being a lady and so that's made even harder as well because you know even though she feels feminine people look at her and see something quite scary at the same time when she meets myrtle her it's like a snap of the fingers like her whole mood kind of changes how much can you tease for us about the bond that those two 
are going to start to share over the course of the season? Well, <laughs> they have a very sweet friendship. I think for Primrose, there was no one else in the orphanage that was quite her age, definitely her mental age as well, because mm. she's 16, but, you know, 16 then and 16 now are quite two quite different things. Oh, yeah. So she was quite naive, I think, not to discredit her. She's very intelligent, but I think she's quite young-minded. And so, you know, all of these really impressive women around her are awesome. But, you know, when's someone going to come in that I can be friends with? And so when Myrtle arrives, I think there's just this instant connection because although they can't actually communicate with each other that easily, there's just this bond between being, you know, two young women in this together. And I think it's quite special. There's a scene between the two of them between, I can't remember if it's in episode three or four that I can't wait for people to see. It's like really quick, but at the same time, I, I loved it. I lit right up when I saw that scene. I don't know if when you know which one I'm talking about, but I can't tell anybody yeah. what it is, but trust yeah. me, something, something really nice is, is coming between the two of them. Now, we talked about her gift of height a second ago, and I don't know how tall you are in, in real life, Anna, but there had to be some challenges during filming to sort of pull that off. So what, tell us about maybe some of those challenges. I mean, were you looking down at people that you should have been looking up at at times? What, how was, what was that like? Oh, that was, there was a lot. There was a lot of different ways that they went about it. There's an absolute genius VFX team on this show. I'm five foot, so oh, wow. <laughs> I'm tiny. Yeah. Yep. And Primrose is about 10 foot. I think she's slightly more than that. And so, yeah, it's a big jump. So there's lots of different ways that they go about it. Sometimes it is just perspective, like trickery. So sometimes I'm just a lot closer to the camera than other people. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, the camera will be down here and some horrible angle. <laughs> or sometimes I'm on a platform. So they build these like huge five foot green screen platform. I was just going to ask you if they did that to you. Yep. Yep. So that when I stand on it, I'm actually 10 foot, which was horrifying, actually. I can imagine. Because, yeah. I, I just, yeah. I was kind of hoping that they didn't say, okay, Anna, you're going to have to stay up here all the time. And then everybody else is going to have to be down here. I was like, please tell me they didn't put her on a platform the whole time. <laughs> Not the whole time. Not the whole time. They tried their best, like as much as they could. I was down there with the actors, interacting with everyone, getting to play off all of the really amazing actors in the show. But yeah, sometimes it was on a platform, which was well, a bit scary because it was a bit wobbly. <laughs> well, they, they did a great job because you could never tell that there was any differences to the stuff that they were doing. You're right. The effects team is is quite amazing. You talked about oh, her awareness and her naivety a couple minutes ago, but I still feel like she's kind of aware of what's going on and the and the threats that they're faced with, but she, and she doesn't really seem scared by it at all. So is she just brave, or does she just trust the people around her that much? You think? I think there are lots of different levels to it. I think she does really, really trust the people around her, and that might be where some of the naivety comes in. In that you know she sees Amalia, she sees Penance, like two really incredible minds and really strong women. And they've taken her in and this is her new family now. So I think there's a lot of trust there, but you know, she is brave and she hopefully will start to see a kind of journey with her character where she starts to put a little bit more trust in herself and 
hopefully one day she can see the power that she can have as a person. Because, you know, for her, it's definitely a hindrance, her height. But for anyone else looking onto it, it's like, oh, cool. Right, <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you can achieve some stuff up there. No doubt about it. We're talking to Anna Devlin, who plays Primrose Chataway on The Nevers, which you're watching every Sunday night at 9 o'clock Eastern Time on HBO and HBO Max. Now, Anna, even though the orphans aren't necessarily orphans in the true sense of the word, we do hear Primrose mention her mother in this first episode. And we don't we don't actually get to see a lot of ladies talk about their families. But we also hear what Lucy had to say in response to that. So will we actually get to learn about her family at all during the course of the season? Can you tell us? Not overtly, but I think something that you get to learn quite quickly from everyone is that, unfortunately, they've had to create a new family of their mm. own. Unfortunately, Primrose family didn't want to have her around anymore. They were ashamed of her and her differences. And, you know, you kind of see that with Myrtle at the beginning as well. People are really scared of the touched. They don't understand them. And I think that's where a lot of their problems lies and where a lot of their threats lie. And hopefully one day we see something of Primrose's family. I would love to see them learn to accept her a little bit more. That would be great. But yeah, for now, her, her family is at the orphanage. So you talked about the great women that you worked with on the show, and there are a ton of them. I'm sure they had to lead to a lot of fun moments on the set. Do you have any stories you could share for us about something that happened maybe that was really fun when the cameras weren't rolling? Oh, I'm nervous about saying anything that would... Oh, it's that good then, huh? Okay, all right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I can't talk about on set, but I think just any time that I got to be in a scene where everyone was together mm-hmm. just got me so excited because even just on the table read, for example, just sitting there, I could just sit back and I kind of forgot I was in the show because I'm just watching these incredible actors like p- playing off each other and they are just so talented. It's crazy. And still, I just feel so humbled to be even just a small part of their show. It's, it's crazy. Now, we actually do get to see you in a, in a bit of a group in this upcoming episode, in episode two. She goes on a little bit of a field trip, but without spoiling anything, how much do you feel like that excursion will actually speak to how the touched are really viewed by the rest of society? The touched, I think so far in episode one, you get to see the inside world of the orphanage where they all like stay together and they can be themselves around each other. And then you see the outside and there are some really terrifying people out there and they are scared of the touched. But I think it's quite interesting in episode two because we get to kind of see the varying reactions to the touched. And I don't know, for me, it kind of makes me think about in the Victorian era when they had freak shows where, you know, there were lots of different reactions. Some people would be terrified of these people who had, you know, small differences, women with beards and you know, people who were super flexible. And then some people will kind of marvel at them and celebrate them. And so I think that's quite a fun thing that we get to see in episode two. And you'll definitely get to see a lot of that as well. And before I let you go, we talked about her height and how, you know, maybe she could look at it as as not a good thing and other people's would. So I want to play a little hypothetical with you for a second. Let's say that you could choose the ability of any of the touched any of the women that have turned on the show that we've seen so far, which one would you want and why? Or which one do you think Primrose would want? 
Myrtle's turn is really cool. The fact that she can speak all of these different languages. That is really cool. But it's kind of made impossible by the fact that she can't control which one she speaks. <laughs> right. So, and, and Primrose would love that. She would love that. But I think it's got to be penance because what she does is just incredible. And it's so much fun and it's so much fun to watch. And it, I think it's got to be the most impressive one. Absolutely. And you can see how it all unfolds every Sunday night at 9 p.m. Eastern time on HBO and HBO Max. Join what everybody else is doing on Sunday night, and that is watching The Nevers. And wait to see what she's got coming up in episode two and beyond. It's Anna Devlin. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you. I promise you, you're going to love Primrose Chataway more and more as the season goes on. Episode two of The Nevers is on HBO and HBO Max this Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Thanks again to Anna Devlin for joining me this week to talk about The Nevers. Up next, we continue with our chat with Dominic Cook, director of The Courier. Up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hello, this is Emmett Esmer from Blindspot on NBC and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Can't wait to get my history geek on to talk about The Courier with this guy's <laughs> director, Dominic Cook. Dominic, welcome. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So we've all kind of learned about the Cold War over the years in school and things like that and even afterwards. But I feel like Greville Wynn's story is kind of largely unknown, especially here in the U.S. Do you feel like that help get, helps give the film a fresh perspective on that time period? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the sort of functions of the film is to tell this unknown story about these two men who made a massive impact on our history and sort of disappeared a bit out of history for various quite in their own terms, quite interesting reasons. No doubt about it. Now, one of the most interesting things about the film for me is how that relationship between Greville and Panofsky developed throughout. Now, without spoiling anything, obviously, talk about that relationship a bit and what Benedict and Marab actually brought to those performances. Yeah, well, these were two guys that were very similar in some ways, very different in others. So you've got Greville Wynn, who was a sort of working class lad made reasonably good, sort of like done pretty well for himself, but he came from a pretty poor background in Wales. He had a sort of very aspirational mother, but he had very severe dyslexia, which at the time, if you imagine he was at school during the First World War, he was sort of like treated like he was just not very bright. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I think his sort of potential, he never reached his full potential sort of in his working life. But eventually he set up a business selling factory equipment over to the sort of Soviet bloc, the Eastern Bloc. And meanwhile, there's this guy who was a war hero called Pankowski, who was in Kiev in the Second World War, basically sort of really important in keeping the Nazis out of Kiev. He won 13 Red Army decorations for his courage. And so he was a sort of not an ordinary guy. He was really mm -hmm. sort of a hero. But they, they came together through this mission and they really had a huge amount in common. They both felt themselves to be sort of outsiders. They both felt, felt themselves to be thwarted by their systems, which they were in different ways. And But they were also sort of bon viveurs. They love drinking. They love oh, women. Yeah. So there's a sort of interesting mix of different things that sort of join them together. I think they were probably both politically quite conservative, certainly by contemporary standards. And they just sort of saw the world in a similar way. So there was this extraordinary sort of synchronicity there. And I found two actors that really sort of had chemistry. So I was sort of lucky that they clicked. They, they really worked well together. 
They were fantastic. But another thing that was fantastic, too, and I'm, I'm so glad you got a chance to squeeze this into the movie, was that I love the way you got to focus on Emily Donovan as well and how she sort of made her way up the ranks in the CIA, which for the time is, to me, absolutely incredible. Why was that such an important part of the story for you? You needed to have the sort of people who are running the case, because you've got the sort of British, very uptight, sort of slightly smug superior. You know, all the usual British stuff, uh, <laughs> you know. And actually, it's true at the time, because at the time, it's quite an interesting moment in espionage, because the CIA was relatively young, by comparison with the British Secret Service, which had been going for centuries in different forms. But it was obviously very, very powerful. At this point, it was on the up. But it had had a few mishaps in the Soviet Union in the sort of six months before this. So they needed MI6 to come on board. And MI6 was sort of enjoying the fact that, you know, CIA had messed up uh -huh. and they were very superior. So Emily Don Donovan is actually a mix of various characters that were involved. And she, uh, in our movie, she's sort of, the interesting thing about her is as a woman working in a man's world at that time, she's sort of pretending to be less bright than she is, less smart than she is in order to get what she needs. So there's a sort of counterpoint in a way to the sort of secrecy that's going on in the rest of the movie that this woman's having to sort of pretend and be strategic in order to get anything done. And Rachel Brosnahan, who sort of loved the script and came on board with great enthusiasm, was just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant because she's super bright and subtle and make the guys feel that they've made the decisions. No doubt about that. Now, obviously, Greva went through a great deal and we get to see how that affects him and his life at home throughout the film, actually. Talk about the process of how you all wanted to build that pressure slowly that he was under and was there ever any consideration actually to telling more of his story from after the effects of him actually coming back well there's a very interesting film to be made about that i mean that is yeah i mean there's a whole other film you can make about the that one we made there is there really is because it was a fascinating thing that happened we decided you know pretty early on i mean it was sort of there in the very first draft of the script i read that what we were going to focus on was the sort of transformative nature of these these guys on each other and that that was the sign of our particular take on this story. And I think the it's really necessary, especially if you're taking sort of real life material, to decide what your take is and just do that. Because otherwise you sort of disperse it all or you get very spotty and you're looking around here, looking around there. So we mm -hmm. tried to make sure that everything that was happening in the film was somehow impacted by or impacting on that relationship. And that's the sort of center of it. And therefore, we just couldn't allow the screen time. It's already was quite hard getting it down. So it's sort of two hours. Mm -hmm. We couldn't sort of allow too much about what happened afterwards. And also, we sort of wanted to stress what they'd achieved. Because as, as, as you've said, you know, people don't know about. So we sort of wanted to mark what they'd done. And, and actually, the, the next bit of the story, which is really a story of trauma and a story of abandonment by the authorities, which was standard issue at this time. It's rather like the way that they would send people to war. You know, you go and fight in the war and your soul is crushed for the rest of your life, but uh, <laughs> you're sort of thrown back into everyday life, you know, and it's really hard for people. And the understanding of trauma at that time in the early 60s was pretty, I mean, pretty elementary. I mean, it was like people really didn't understand what it would be like to come through a trauma like that and be expected to sort of go back into everyday life. And actually, uh, Grebowin did have a, a, what, what was termed at the time a, a nervous breakdown. He completely sort of collapsed about, I think, a few months after it happened, which is totally unsurprising. Mm -hmm. Totally unsurprising. Right. Because you can't go through something like that unscarred, especially if you're then expected in sort of uptight British world to go back to being sort of normal, whatever that is. So, you know, it was it was a tough old time initially. Sort of got his life back together, but it was a tough old time at the beginning. 
totally. You used the word transformative a couple times, which is funny because I actually have that right here in front of me because I feel like the film is very transformative, both literally and figuratively, as the story continues to unfold. So as you were going through the process of putting the film together, do you feel like your opinion of Greville actually changed the more you dove into the story? Well, my opinion of him changed a bit once I did my research because he was a complicated guy. He really was. Mm. And it's very hard when any when you're sort of trying to get into something, uh, to a story about espionage, to get to the truth. Because, of course, the truth was covered up. So right, <laughs> exactly. point. So, right, it's, it's actually quite difficult to sort of work out who he was. But I think... I suppose I was particularly interested in that thing about courage and what the nature of courage is, because you can't really be courageous unless you're frightened. If you're not frightened, it's not courageous. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, the toughest things in our lives are often the things we're most frightened of doing. And and I think what we what we really wanted to do is to get to the core of sort of both the fear within him, but also the sort of determination to keep going. And especially in the latter part of the film, he was sort of extraordinarily courageous in what he did. Uh, because he he kept the information from the authorities in a way and this is true this is there were lots of things that he fictionalized himself about what he did but he absolutely kept them away from Pankowski and away from finding out stuff that would be dangerous for the British and American states as well so you know he was he was pretty amazing and I suppose we don't know what we've got within us until we're in that situation I mean he was just a sort of salesman he didn't know he had the potential right. to sort of stave off the best minds in the KGB, you know, till he was there. That's interesting. Before yeah. I let you go, Dominic, obviously the pandemic and the status of theaters with, with, with all that going on in the last year, there's a lot of fans who have been unable to see The Courier, which has been in theaters. And I mean, it did quite well under the circumstances, I think. But does this on-demand re- release actually feel like you're releasing the film again for the first time? Yeah, it does, because we are doing it in two stages. I mean, to be honest, I've been absolutely delighted by how well it's gone in the States in, in movie theaters. I mean, you know, everything's relative. But at one point, I, th- I was wondering whether we'd ever even get it into, into movie theaters, which mm-hmm. would have been a shame because that's sort of what we made it for. And I'm I'm just really pleased that it had its moment. And hopefully people can still go see it in movie theaters if they want to. But We've all sort of got used to watching movies and really great TV at home. And I've spent the last year catching up on the filling the holes in my movie, in my movie history. I mean, it's been amazing for that. I have seen so many great movies and the quality of of screens and the way we watch now is so different to how we used to be in the days of VHS and all that. So, you know, the quality is pretty high, but it does. Yeah, this is a this is a second release. And I agree with you. I think it, it will reach a lot more people the second on this sort of second wave. Because a lot of people aren't that confident in getting out there, and I understand why. Well, if you do want to see it in theaters, it is still available in theaters, but you can also watch The Courier on premium video on demand on Friday, April the 16th. You guys are going to want to be all over this one. Absolutely loved it. Dominic Cook, director of The Courier, thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot, James. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You can actually read my review of The Courier from when it was released in theaters at Down and Nerdy Podcast. Dot com very in-depth review no spoilers in there either so you can be safe from that and i gotta tell you if you love history or you just love a good espionage story you're gonna want to watch the courier on video on demand however you get your video on demand right now you will not be sorry that you did benedict cumberbatch rachel, rachel brosnahan both amazing in this i think you're really gonna love it thanks to dominic cook for joining me this week to talk about his work on the courier up next it's time to get paranormal talk to the ghost brothers dale and Sprat. And Juwan Mass up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. 
Hey, this is Angelica Washington from DC Star Girl, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. If you guys love the paranormal, chances are you love these guys too. The Ghost Brothers are back, going to be on Discovery Plus with Ghost Brothers Lights Out starting on April the 17th. I'm sure you've seen their WonderCon panel as well. It's Dale and Spratt, Juwan Mass. Thank you guys for joining me this week. What's up, guys? Hey, man, what's going on? Thank you for having what's me. What's happening? Man, you guys have actually been friends for a long time. Anybody that doesn't know the backstory between you guys. So talk a little bit about how the subject of the paranormal came up when your friendship sort of started. Because I feel like the paranormal is not like an easy subject to bring up, right? So how did you guys actually get on that topic when you started becoming friends? So Juwan and I met in college. So we met back in like 2004 at Clark Atlanta University. So we've been friends for 16, 17 years. But literally after college, we were doing what most broke people do. And uh, that was being roommates <laughs> together. Right. Sharing a uh, living space. <laughs> <laughs> but no, nah, literally, I woke up in the middle one night and uh, there was a ghost hunting show on television. And I just said to myself, I was like, dang, man, I'll never see any representation of myself on any of these shows. Like all I see is, you know, middle-aged white men. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was like, man, where the black folks at? Where, where are my Latino friends? Like where the Asians at? Like where, where, where there's every race and ethnicity and religion has their perspective of what happens after life. No and I just like those perspectives should be shared. And I remember running to Dewan's room, literally at like three in the morning, busting down his door, <laughs> thinking I had the greatest idea in the world. It was like, hey man, we should hunt ghosts. And when I tell you, I've never been cussed out so quick in my life. <laughs> well, it was three in the morning, Dalen. Come on. This <laughs> is really random. It was really random. But here we are. Honestly, man, when I found out that Dalen and I had similar upbringings, just as far as uh, religion goes, his mother was a pastor. And so, like, we started to have, I mean, we had conversations based loosely around, like, spirituality in that realm. But it didn't, it, it didn't involve what we would consider paranormal right now, right? We didn't talk about demons and anything dark and we didn't really talk about that demonic place just because that was something taboo to us growing up. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that brought us together was like this natural inquisitiveness. Like we, we would always be curious and always sought out questions. And so it led us on this journey of uh, seeking the paranormal. So one of the things I love about you guys' show is that you really like to bring a lot of fun to it marcus as well i mean you guys have a, obviously have a healthy respect for it but at the same time you bring a lot of fun to your show do you feel like that's one of those things that kind of sets you guys apart in the kind of field that you're in definitely it definitely sets us apart but it was totally unintentional like it's not <laughs> like we sat down and was like you know what we should put a spin on paranormal by adding humor i think it genuinely came with us just being friends for 17 years you know what i mean like you can't go into any situation with your best friend and somebody not crack a joke have an inside joke y'all reminiscing on things from 13 years ago like that's what builds the humor in our relationship it's not like other reality shows not even saying paranormal shows which is in the reality world mm-hmm. where you put a cast together and now you have forced friendships and forced relationships if we didn't have this show, we would still be at each other's mama's house on Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's, this show does nothing but make us spend more time, more time together. <laughs> I mean, we approach the investigations with a sense of levity, right? Like, I mean, you laugh while you are living, so why would not? Why would you not still have a sense of humor and laugh when you're dead? I mean, we can we 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 offer that lightheartedness in the investigation to kind of see if we can have a different outcome or the same outcome. 
That's a good point. That's a really good point. You spoke about representation really quickly. I want to go back to that for a second because last year I was talking to a, a group of women who are in the paranormal field for a panel that they were doing for another convention. And they basically said, you know, just because you don't see it on TV doesn't mean there aren't a lot of women in the field. So since you guys have been doing this, do you kind of feel like the same way? Do you just because you don't see, you know, people that like you said, the people that look like you, the black community on TV doing paranormal investigations doesn't necessarily mean there aren't black people in this field. Yeah, it, that's true. Now, <laughs> <laughs> years ago, it was so hard for us to find black people in the paranormal community. Like literally we scoured the internet for paranormal groups all over the country internationally like we could not find one person to respond back wow. that was that was black and we would go to conventions and literally it would be us and a sea of white people <laughs> <laughs> but over the years as the show progressed more and more people of color have started to come out started to come out to our investigations they have been joining paranormal groups all over the country not saying we're the catalyst for that but I just feel like people are more open to discussing it now that they see people like us on television and we're not getting backlash for being different. Couldn't have said it better myself, <laughs> honestly. There you go, man. There you go. So Couldn't have said it better myself. you guys have been doing this for a while now and every investigation is different, right? You guys have investigated people's homes and places like the Winchester house. You got a chance to do that as well. Do you enjoy like checking out the historic locations more or is it, or is it cooler to actually go like to a family's house or to a residence and investigate a place like that? I know for me personally, uh, both, because they're, they're two totally different things. Like, I don't know anybody else's job where literally they can travel all over the country and all over the world to some of the most craziest places that has some of the most craziest stories. Like you're learning something every day that you go to work, like something crazy, not like how to, you know, tighten a screw or hit a hammer or input something on Excel. You're learning about this lady that killed her whole family in 1885 and buried the baby under the garage. You know what I mean? Like you know, some crazy thing. And on the other side of that, going to people's houses, you're helping families. And these are people currently like alive today dealing with things in their personal space. So it gives you two different vibes, but I mean, I enjoy both of them. What about you, Juan? Yeah, it's tough to say which one is better. I think they both hold a, a, a very important space. For us, from a production standpoint, I think these larger locations with a deep story, they make for great investigative spots, right? But when you start talking about like homes that people are currently living in, like that's layered. Like you don't know what this family could be dealing with, but you also don't know what the history of this property is. And maybe the family has nothing to do with what could be potentially haunting this location. Maybe they just stumbled into this particular situation. And so you find the, the tangled web that is woven when you're dealing with like a, a home that somebody lives in uh, that is really interesting. So I don't know which is better, but I enjoy both, honestly. The tangled web. I love it. I love it. Now, you guys are, are pretty experienced investigators, but everybody, even, I don't care how long you've been doing this, you get spooked from time to time. So, Dalen, what would you say was the investigation that spooked Juwan the most and Juwan vice versa for Dalen? Just in the history of our investigative? Yeah, uh, whether, hey, on or off camera, man. You know what? People really don't know about this because we often like we always speak about the instances that happen on camera. So like on camera, it would definitely be the house of wheels, probably for both of us was the craziest thing. Mm -hmm. But I want to take it back to when me and you, Juwan, went to Savannah, Georgia. Yeah, I yeah, love it. Love it. You remember we met that lady that couldn't nobody else see but us? That nobody <laughs> else said they saw. Wow. 
that yeah. nobody else said they man he hey, might have hit he might have hit it right on the head with that one yeah uh, yeah that was that was probably crazy that was the craziest thing but Dude. long story short so you guys aren't left in the dark Jawan and I went to Savannah, Georgia for one of our first investigations. This is before the TV show. This is literally right after we had the idea of ghost hunting. We thought Savannah, Georgia is one of the most haunted places. It's Good close call. to Atlanta. We could just shoot out there real quick and see what happens. Man, listen, we met this lady. <laughs> this, it was an old white lady. <laughs> and she told us to meet her at this address at like 9 p.m. So we meet her at this address at 9 p.m. Uh, and it's a ghost walking tour of downtown Savannah. Yep. We don't see the lady that we met earlier in the day, but we see this woman that's dressed in like this 1800s garb. And we realize, is that the lady from earlier today? But the crazy part was no one else in our group was acknowledging her. So everybody was talking to everybody along this two hour and uh, walking tour of downtown Savannah. Then you have this lady dressed in 1800s garb hanging in the back and nobody's talking to her or referencing her or seeing her or saying anything to her. When the it was, was over, wow. No, I was saying, but it was like, it was weird because we were engaged with both. Like we'd be engaged with the tour and then we'd be engaged with her. And it's like, are we the only ones really seeing this or are we? It was it was weird. And literally after the tour was over, everyone left and we were still standing there. This lady walked up to us and asked, could she show us something? So we literally walked with her through downtown Savannah and she pointed out every place that someone passed away, that there was wow. still a spirit. So me and Jawan, we we hanging back a little bit like, dang, like how she know where all these ghosts wow. are in downtown Savannah? We start walking and I promise you, hand the guy, the last thing she said to us was like, we have one more thing to show you. Or excuse me, I have one more thing to show you. And we was like, cool, what's up? She was like, follow me to this cemetery. Jawan was like, hey, Sounds like up. a great <laughs> idea, yeah. <laughs> I had to draw the line. I'm like, I'm like, yo, is she, she like, you wanna see a dead body? It was something <laughs> like right. that. It, wow. like it, was <laughs> it wasn't that bad, but like, it wasn't that bad, but she was definitely like, yeah, just, just, just come with me to the cemetery really quickly. So at that point, it was just multiple layers on that. Like, hey, hey two brothers can't just be following some old white lady. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't finna get arrested in Savannah, not tonight for doing nothing <laughs> like that. So we was like, no, we're good. I promise you this lady, we're at like a cross crossroad where you could go left or right. She turns left, we turn right. Jawan and I only took, I promise you, three steps. We turned around and the lady was gone. Wow. This lady was old. She wasn't no athlete. She could. She could, wasn't hitting no corners fast. <laughs> she totally disappeared in a matter of a second. And to me, to this day, I, I cannot explain that. But she gave us some really dope information. She set the tone for our future investigations because she told us wow. before we leave any place, make sure you tell the spirits to stay and that they're not welcome with you because they will follow you. Yep, I've heard that. I've heard that. Always a good practice if you're going anywhere paranormal, by the way. Yeah. So yeah, now that I mean, you guys are on Discovery Plus with Lights Out, will we see a bit of a different show than we've seen in the past? And are there any locations you guys are really excited for fans to see that you're going to be going in this upcoming season? Yeah, most definitely. So this 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 Ghost Brothers Lights Out, we get back to our roots. We get back to Ghost Brothers like the first season where we're going to larger than life locations, uh, jails, asylums, 
we're going to different homes. They may not be inhabited like we did on, on Haunted House Guests. Like we're getting back to like this, this raw investigative tactic. But what's also different is Dalen is sending Marcus and I in blind. So Ooh. literally Dalen knows where we're going. He knows the story about the locations. And he's like basically dropping Marcus and I off and was like, yeah, you guys go have at it. Uh, we don't know anything about it. He has some blueprints and we just literally follow his instructions via walkie. Like, yeah, go into this room. I can't tell you what's wrong. Can't tell you what happened, but it's really to see like what invested, what evidence we pick up and kind of have like a uninhibited baseline investigation. Diabolical, Dalen. Diabolical. Love it. That's a great word. Take over the word. One most <laughs> Really good word. I'm like, we leave an investigation like, what's next, Pinky? You know what I mean? Yep. Like, yeah. No, it's really good. It's really good. That's awesome. Before I let you guys go, every investigator has their bucket list locations that they want to investigate. I don't care who you are. So is there anywhere that you guys haven't gone yet, both of you, that you really can't wait to get a chance to go to at some point? Yeah. You know what? COVID really screwed us this past year. Because I'm going to go ahead and be honest with y'all. Y'all not know this is an exclusive. You get an exclusive. All right, here we go. Can you... Lights Out was supposed to be international this year. Oh, we were to, yeah. We were supposed to be all over Eastern Western Europe. We were yeah. supposed to be in Dracula's Castle. We were oh man! Yeah, man. And now we at the Pensacola Lighthouse. <laughs> Not to be selfish, but that's a good place too. That's, that's a good, yeah. That's a good place. Good place. But yeah, we were supposed to be international. So yeah, all of those places that we had picked for this season. Yeah, those are the places. So I mm. like, yeah, one just an example is like Dracula's Castle. That was we had like a whole storyline that, that we were searching, going to multiple places, like chasing the theory behind Dracula. And his, like, it was crazy, man. It was gonna be dope, but be on the lookout for it. That I doesn't was, mean that it's not gonna happen. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, everything works out and this world opens back up. I would say uh, maybe a, a island somewhere close to the equator. You know, why do we have to hunt ghosts in like cold climates? Why why can't we be in warm climates? I feel like people die everywhere. People like, definitely die here. in the heat. I'm sure. Yeah, I think, I'm pretty sure somebody may have died off the shores of the Maldives. Like I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, there you go. Yep. Go check it out. Like certain for cold spots in cold climates. How about a cold spot in a hot climate? You know what I mean? A lot more <laughs> obvious in a hot climate than it is in a cold climate. That's a very good point. There you go. There you go. So if anybody discovers listening, you know, let's bring the suntan lotion to the next investigation. About. <laughs> well, you guys can see the first three episodes of Ghost Brothers Lights Out when it premieres on April the 17th. Make sure you're subscribing to Discovery Plus. That's the only way that you're going to see these guys, the Ghost Brothers, Dale and Juwan, and of course, Marcus, who couldn't be with us today. Thank you guys so much for joining me. Appreciate it. Appreciate you. You want to talk about great paranormal investigating and a lot of fun at the same time? Yeah, make sure you're watching the Ghost Brothers. Ghost Brothers Lights Out is going to be premiering on Discovery Plus this Saturday, and I cannot wait. Again, thanks to Dale and Spratt and Juwan Mass for joining me this week to talk about Ghost Brothers. I have to have them back on when we get Marcus on, too, and talk to all three of the guys. That would be a ton of fun. Up next, I give my spoiler-filled review of the painkiller backdoor pilot from the CW on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Christine Adams from Black Lightning, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. In case you missed it, this past Monday, Black Lightning had the painkiller backdoor pilot. I want to give you my spoiler-filled thoughts 
on this real quick and just overall impressions now. We see Khalil, again, spoilers, by the way, has teamed up with Filky, who's a former ASA agent of his own, and they're trying to find a way to neutralize Painkiller in his brain for a lack of a better way to put it. Maybe control is a better way to, to put it, actually. So he finally doesn't actually want Painkiller gone. He just wants them to coexist. There's a duality there, but it largely avoids the tropes that come with this kind of story. So I really like how they approached it. And we do see Anissa in this. We, uh, things just don't go well for Grace. Grace just seems to get snatched up all the time or something bad happens to Grace. And that's exactly what happens here. She's abducted. Khalil comes into the picture, almost kills Anissa too, by the way, his painkiller. But at the same time, so now he's going to try and save Grace from whoever kidnaps her. And we, and we find a little bit more about that towards the end of the episode. We also meet cousin Donald, who was a soldier that Khalil saved. He had massive PTSD. And now he's part of basically what is team painkiller now. And we speaking of the abductor, of Grace, we, we see Maya, and we know that she's into some serious mind-altering weirdness, and she's got a team of her own. We're not exactly sure what's going on there, but the team actually realizes that this tech could be the key to doing exactly what they need to do to control Painkiller in Khalil's mind. So, you know, you obviously want to try and go in and get that. And let me say this really quickly. The action in this and the fight choreography was amazing, especially for, I don't care if it was a backdoor pilot or a regular pilot, the action shouldn't be this good and this polished in your first episode. It was insane. I mean, some of the best action in the Arrowverse, period. I'm honest about that. Jordan Calloway, by the way, fantastic, especially in these action scenes. He was good on Black Lightning, but I don't know what they decided to do in this series, but they cranked up the choreography on this one because the fight scenes were absolutely fantastic. But it, but at the same time, he goes in there, he kicks some ass, and it almost seems like it's too easy, right? It's like like this could be, you know, this whole thing could end in one episode. Not so much. There was a really nice way that they went about how he, you know, they kind of don't get exactly what they want, and that sets up what would be the first season of Painkiller. There's also a nice little bookend story to his storyline with the Pierce family that also acts as a bridge between his past with Odell in a very unexpected way. I'm not going to spoil the end for you. That's what I'm trying to say here. So I thought a really I, this was much more well executed than I expected it to be. I wanted to like this. I ended up loving it. I was really surprised. I mean, I liked the characters involved anyway. I was really impressed by the new team they put together. The reasons behind it, I think, were interesting and not too complicated, by the way. You didn't need to overcomplicate that, and they didn't. I loved that. Jordan Calloway takes his character to another level in this series. I mean, you've got to do that. When, you've, when you're going to be the star of your own series all of a sudden, now you got to take it up a notch. And I think that Jordan Calloway personally does that, and I think Silly McKeel deserves a lot of credit there, too, for the storytelling behind this series as well. When you look at this, and I know it's probably not a fair comparison, but I'm going to do it anyway. You look at this backdoor pilot compared to what they did with Green Hour and the Canaries, which I was sad to see didn't get picked up, but you see why they passed on it. Because you see, I this backdoor pilot was so much better in almost every way. 
and so much more well executed from start to finish than Green Air on the Canaries was. Not to say the Green Air on the Canaries wasn't a good backdoor pilot, but this one was just 10 times better, and I didn't expect it to be. And the, the, the reasons behind why this show exists is also better, too, by the way. And it's not as connected to Black Lightning as you would think. There's a major connect connection there that we see at the end, obviously. But at the same time, this feels like Khalil's story in a way that Green Arrow and the Canaries never felt like their own story in an odd way. So this is also a much more personal story, too, by the way, and with a more interesting hook. hook. So there's that. Apples and oranges comparison, maybe. But if you want to know why... Green Air on the Canaries isn't existing. If you had to pick one over the other, I'd pick Painkiller any day of the week and twice on Sunday because it was that much better than Green Air on the Canaries backdoor pilot. And I think that this could set up, not only does this set up for a really interesting first season, you've got a lot of ways that this can go. Even if he does gain control of Painkiller, there's a lot of different ways that this can go. So I'm super excited for what the future holds for the Painkiller series on the CW. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Painkiller. Up next, we're going to be talking some comics. It's what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer and artist Gabriel Rodriguez, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Whether it's on the shelf or on your tablet, whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. I had a rough week with comics last week. Let's see if we can remedy that, shall we, with Spider-Man. Spider-Man Shadow, number one from Marvel, and Chip Zdarsky writing this one. Pasquale Ferry on the art, Matt Hollingsworth on the colors, and VCs Joe Caramagna on the letters. What an amazing cover by Phil Noto, too, by the way. I love Phil's work. This one is especially amazing, though. This is actually a what-if story. It actually takes place around when Spider-Man number 258 was released, and it looks at if Peter Parker actually kept the black symbiote suit instead of getting rid of it. So it was very interesting and maybe some minor spoilers in this review too. So I want to make sure you give you a heads up on that. We know the effect that the suit can have on someone's mental state. And we see that in full display actually on this issue. I mean, Peter's not himself. He's angry, lashing out, having some terrible nightmares as well. It's almost like he's pushing his entire life away except for when he's, Spider-Man, and he doesn't understand why. So who do you go to in this situation? And this may be the biggest spoiler I can give you in this issue, is that he goes to Reed Richards for answers, and he gets them. He doesn't necessarily like them, but he gets them. And how he reacts to that continues his spiral, and it really leads to something major happening during a battle at the end of this book. Actually, a couple different things happen during that battle, if I'm being honest. It's amazing to me, though, that this story hasn't been told until now, honestly. I mean, especially with What If Comics. I'm surprised it's taken this long, but I'm glad that we finally got to it because this is one of those stories that would make any true Spider-Man fan feel uncomfortable. And I mean that as a compliment, actually. You should feel uncomfortable if you love Spidey and you love Peter reading this story. You don't want to see Peter like this, but you can't help but wonder what's going to happen next at the same time, because you're, I think Peter Parker is one of those characters you constantly root for regardless, right? And this is one of those times where you just want him to get better, period. That's all you want. But at the same time, you want to see how far this could really go if he had kept that suit. The art overall is really good in this book, too. And the way it shifts in certain moments really sells the suit's true power 
in influence in this symbiote. The lettering, too. I mean, jo- Joe Caramagna doesn't get enough credit for the books that he does. And this is another one of those times where I think he really helps this book stand out. So you cannot take lettering for granted here. Very important to have a good letterer. And Spider-Man Shadow, number one from Marvel, definitely has that. If you haven't read this one yet, I would run to your local comic book shop to get this one because it was actually really, really good. How about Tom Taylor writing a Batman book? Batman the Detective, number one, from DC. From Tom and artist Andy Kubert. Brad Anderson on the colors here. And Clem Robbins on the letters. Now, this actually takes place after Alfred's death. And the departure of the quote-unquote family. So, Bruce is basically alone at this point. And introspection isn't his friend right now. But he still has a massive crime to deal with. And I mean major. And we will see the beginning of that in the in this in the beginning of the issue actually you'll see what happens and kind of who's involved so batman's off in a new location across the pond and it actually has maybe a long-term change for him who knows it's like a big question mark so it's the start of many changes actually there's a new i say robin not really robin but that's what it feels like because it's not his robin quite frankly and you'll find that out as the issue goes on and and when the suit is on though Bruce is still very much Batman. Nothing, he's unflappable when that suit is on. It's, it, I, I love that Tom, Tom Taylor really brings that out. But, of course, he finds out who the threat is, but it's what they're doing that is particularly disturbing in this book. It's hard to find many new angles on, with so many Bat books going on at DC, especially recently. But Tom, really finds, Tom Taylor has really found a niche here, and I found myself really, really interested in, in where this one's going. It's it's almost like an assault on one of the few good things that Bruce feels like he's done in his time as Batman. Especially, again, especially recently, the effects of what's been going on with him recently and how that's taken a mental toll on him can't be denied in this. So you, you sort of find a niche there, and Tom Taylor just found the perfect angle to take on this, in my view. We're also dealing with an older and battered Bruce Wayne, too. So that kind of contributes to the problem as well. Love the character designs in this. Art, again, is really, really good. There's some real grit to it, which you've got to have in a cranky Batman book. And I think that that's what you have here is not necessarily cranky Bruce Wayne, but maybe depressed Bruce Wayne or, or beaten and battered Bruce Wayne, however you want to describe him. It definitely brings off a different vibe. So yeah, Batman the Detective, number one. If you're worried about it being just another Batman book, I don't think it is. This one is definitely worth your time. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. Not a ton of nerd news this week, but we'll get into what there was. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Echo Callum, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Big surprise, there are zombies in Washington. It's time for nerd news. And I say that because the Resident Evil series that is coming to Netflix, the anime series, finally released a little bit of a first look trailer. Of course, it's going to be called Resident Evil Infinite Darkness, which is going to premiere in July of this year on Netflix, which is the good news. We have Ichiro... Hasumi doing the directing here for this one. It looks visually fantastic. I mean, it's almost like you took the game, ratcheted the visuals up another notch, and then gave us this anime series. So it looks fantastic. All right, and it actually looks like a little bit of Raccoon City is going to be coming to Washington, D.C. and invading the White House of all places. So it looks like this series might be might take place almost entirely in 
the White House. We see our main, we meet our main characters, Leon, who's played by Nick Apostolides, and Claire Redfield, who's played by Stephanie Panicello. And basically, they, they know each other. They clearly have a history, and they have a little bit of a chance meeting at the White House. We've got Leon, who's there to investigate something that happened with some files that were improperly accessed that were traced back to the White House. So he's there to investigate that. And she's there to investigate a little boy's drawing that actually had some zombies in it, some mysterious zombies, and it was from a completely other country. And she's there to ask the White House for assistance in that in a certain way. And that's just kind of how these stories converge or start to converge anyway. Leon kind of dismisses it in the trailer. You see that. And she's clearly concerned. And and all of a sudden, the outbreak happens. You know, classic, the lights go out. And everything starts. So there's a lot of intrigue here. I'm curious to see, though. I mean, we got a little bit of a look at it in the trailer. I'm curious to see how these stories really do converge, though, and how they tie everything together. I'm sure it won't be difficult. But at the same time, it's interesting how these two separate events across the globe could actually be connected to one another. But already there's a lot of intrigue here. You see from the trailer, you got you got a good look. At some of the zombies, it looks like classic Resident Evil, and that's a good thing. But at the same time, I feel like if you weren't a Resident Evil fan, you could still, just the first vibe that I'm getting from this, you could still enjoy this series just based on what I'm seeing from this one trailer. A little too soon to tell, obviously, but I've got a good I've got a good feeling about this one. So I'm looking forward to Resident Evil Infinite Darkness when it comes to Netflix in July. We know that the Amazon boy, the boy, spinoff for the boys is going to be coming here, not in the near future, but at some point. And now we know who is going to be playing the lead, and that is Raina Hardesty, who you've probably seen on Brockmire. As a matter of fact, if you remember uh, Weather Witch, the new Weather Witch on The Flash, she played Weather Witch. I thought quite memorably, quite frankly. So, yeah, she joins the cast that already has Shane Paul McGee. Uh, Amy Carrero and Maddie Phillips and a bunch of others. And remember, this is going to be a college for superheroes that is run by Vaught. And they think they say it is going to be a very much rated R series that you've got some hormonal competitive soups and they're putting their set themselves to the test to compete for the best contracts in the biggest city. So that's what's going to be going on. Here And this is going to be an original work, too, by the way. This casting first reported by Deadline. Eric Kripke's got some lofty, lofty goals for this thing. So, I mean, when you've got the original creative team behind this thing, that already should tell you that, you know, they're in good hands. And it's going to be executive roofed by Craig Rosenberg, who worked on the show, uh, worked on the original show as well. So I I have high hopes for this. I think it's going to be, I I mean, just think of what they did with the boys or original series anyway now add teenagers in the mix all teenagers and you can only imagine how that's going to go so yeah i'm super excited for this and i mean expanding on this world why not expand on this world especially if you have the opportunity to do so speaking of the boys though do you see that jensen eccles first look he looks completely different it's free it's almost freaky he's got the you know the big beard he looks 10 times older than he usually does. It's it's wild stuff, man. If you haven't seen that yet, go over to his Instagram page and see it for yourself. It, it's crazy. We've got some more casting news this time for The Last of Us. Big big week for video game adaptation news. Gabriel Luna going to be joining the HBO series according to Deadline, and he's going to be playing Tommy. And if you're a fan of The Last of Us, you know that Tommy 
is Joel's younger brother. He's a little bit more of the optimist in the family. He's a former soldier, too, by the way, so that certainly helps things. And, of course, he joins Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey, who are going to be playing Joel and Ellie, respectively. I mean, I, I like that we're finally getting Gabriel Luna. He's been doing some really serious stuff lately. It's going to be nice to see him playing a little bit more of an optimistic role, so not kind of like the anti-hero kind of thing. I actually think that Gabriel Luna will suit this role really well, and I'm really curious to see how he and Pedro Pascal play off of one another. I've just got this gut feeling that they're going to have really good chemistry together on screen. I just think that the way that their acting styles complement each other and other stuff that we've seen, I actually think this is going to be a really interesting dynamic that's created between the two of them. So I'm excited to see how this is going to go. I mean, I'm excited for this this series for The Last of Us anyway. I'm kind of glad, again, that it's going to be a series and not a movie. That doesn't mean they won't do a movie at some point, but I still think this is the better format to be telling the story of The Last of Us. So let's go ahead and go with that. So there's been a lot of Fantastic Four fan casting. This week, you've seen it on social media. There's been a ton of chatter about it. I thought, why not? Let me throw my hat into the ring here as well. This might be a little bit controversial and self-serving. I'll be be honest with that right now. But that's the whole point of fan casting, right? We're all fans. And if you want to throw yours in, too, by the way, make sure you tweet me at downandnerdy757. I'd like to hear what you have to say if you hear this. So I just think that John Krasinski and Emily Blunt as Reed Richards and Sue Storm makes too much sense. I Maybe that's a cop-out. Maybe you're saying, really, James, you're going to do this. You're just going to go with that. I'm going with that because I think that that it just makes so much sense. And John Krasinski, people love him. People, Marvel likes to get people that are fan favorites to play the roles. I mean, they got Bradley Cooper to play Rocket, okay, because people love Bradley Cooper, and people love Chris Pratt, too, by the way, so he ended up playing Star-Lord. How do you argue with that? So if you grab somebody like John Krasinski to play Reed Richards, who can play, he could play smart, but he can play funny as well, and that just works. And Emily Blunt, I think, could bring some real personality to the Sue Storm role that's been very much lacking in the last couple of adaptations. So, I mean, why not do that, right? Here's where I go off the rails from everybody else, though. And and you're going to roll your eyes when I say this, and I don't care. So I think that Stephen Amell would be a good Johnny Storm. I'm sorry. I know that we've seen him brooding in a lot of things, right? I mean, you remember him on Arrow. You think it really? Oliver Queen? You want Oliver Queen to play the charismatic Johnny Storm. And to that, I say, well, you didn't think that Michael Keaton could play Batman. And that worked out pretty well, didn't it? You didn't think that Heath Ledger could play the Joker. And that worked out pretty well, didn't it? I just think that Stephen Amell is primed for a big-time superhero movie role, not just on TV. I know he's got heels coming out pretty soon. They, I think there was rap production on that, and I know wrestling is a passion of his, so I'm, and I know he's happy to be working on that project. But at the same time, I really think he could pull off the role of Johnny Storm. Here's another one that you're going to yell at me for, and I don't care. How about Michael Coulter? Mike Coulter as Ben Grimm. I know what you're thinking. You're like, really? You want Luke Cage to play Ben Grimm. This is me giving up on the Netflix series ever coming to the MCU. I'm sorry. I just don't think it's going to happen. I really, really don't. And plus, you're introducing the multiverse here. Who's to say that this Fantastic Four is even going to be from the same universe as the current 
Marvel Cinematic Universe. We don't know what universe this Fantastic Four is going to be from, especially since they're they're this is not like it's a movie that's coming out anytime soon. Doctor Strange is going to come first, okay? We have no idea how Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness is going to turn out. No idea how that's going to go. So could that introduce a whole new world? We, you know, you assume that there's an infinite amount of possibilities. You can't tell me in one of these universes Mike Coulter couldn't be Ben Grimm. And don't tell me you don't think he wouldn't do a good job as Ben Grimm because I think he'd be an excellent Ben Grimm. I think he plays a lot of the sides of Ben Grimm's personality really, really well. And fans are already familiar with Mike Coulter from the Marvel Netflix series anyway. So, yeah, I don't want to give up on this ever becoming a thing as a whole, but I am because I think if any of them comes back, it's going to be Daredevil. We could still see Charlie Cox as Daredevil. We could still see Vincent D'Onofrio as Kingpin. Beyond that, maybe you get Kristen Ritter back as Jessica Jones and you scrub the rest because I think that's exactly where they're going with this. I don't think that Marvel will bring back Luke Cage. I don't think that they'll bring back Iron Fist. I'm, you know, it makes me sad. I don't think it's going to happen, even though I don't care what that poll said about people missing Luke Cage the most. I miss Luke Cage, too. I'd love for my culture to come back and play Luke Cage. I just don't think it's going to happen. And to see him fill the role of Ben Grimm in Fantastic Four, I think, would be a step up for Mike Coulter, quite frankly. And I think he could pull it off really, really well. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to my many, many guests this week, Anna Devlin, Dominic Cook, and also the amazing Dalen Spratt and Joan Moss. Make sure you're watching Ghost Brothers Lights Out. Make sure you're watching The Nevers. Make sure you're watching The Courier. Do that all this weekend. I basically planned out your entire weekend for you. Also, go to downandnerdypodcast.com if you want to catch up with us and hear more of my interviews from The Nevers, too, by the way. Also, make sure you follow along on social media at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram and facebook.com slash downandnerdy. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.